Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we believe it is a big deal that you desire to fellowship with us, to make yourself known to us. We think of the words of David who said, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you would visit him? And yet, Lord, you have condescended to reveal yourself to human beings, those that you have created in your image. But how thankful we are that we are among those who have discovered your plan for humanity. And we enjoy the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. In the midst of the many voices that we hear all week long, we now want to tune in and hear your voice, even beyond the voice of the one who is presenting the material. And pray that it would be your Holy Spirit alive and active through your word that would do the speaking. In Jesus' name, amen. At my house, I have a dog named Mac. This is Mac. Mac's a little Welsh terrier. And uh, this little dog has more energy than any pup I've ever owned. This dog is persistent, and he loves to run. He doesn't really like to go on walks, at least with me. I don't take him on a walk. He likes, he goes on a gallop quite frankly. Loves to run at full speed. And so he thinks he's big enough where when I take him on the run, I'm sitting on a bicycle. He's on the leash. He pulls me. This little dog pulls me on my bicycle. He wouldn't have it any other way. Neither would I. (laughs) He can't keep up that pace, but he will for a long time. And then he'll just happily gallop at full speed for a long period of time next to the bike. Now, here's his M.O. Whenever I'm home, he'll follow me from room to room to room until he gets his run. He's all about the run, the chase. He's the hound of the Heitzigs. I really want to speak to you today about the hound of heaven. No disrespect to the Holy Spirit There was a poem written in the 1800s called The Hound of Heaven. It was written by Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson was a medical student. He was going to be a doctor. His dad wanted him to be a doctor. He didn't really want to be. But he was in medical school, went through the motions, but eventually he dropped out, hit the streets of London, became a drug addict in the 1800s, addicted to opium, and became suicidal. Attempted his taking his life a couple of occasions. It was unsuccessful. But he eventually wrote a long poem, 182 lines, called The Hound of Heaven. He speaks about how he ran from God and he ran for years and went here and went there. But God was always patient and faithful to draw him back. And that God, the Holy Spirit, was the hound of heaven. That's what I want to focus on today. Last week we looked at several verses in John chapter 15 and 16 to speak about the person of the Holy Spirit generally. But now I want us to look at something more specific, and that is how the Holy Spirit works at large in this world. He's about doing one thing, drawing people, showing them, revealing to them the need that they have 
And the need is met in Jesus Christ. I suppose if we were to put that chase in a modern terminology, computer terminology, it would sound like this. The maker of all human beings is recalling all units manufactured, regardless of the make or year, due to serious defect in the primary and central component of the heart. This is due to a malfunction in the original prototype units, codenamed Adam and Eve, resulting in the reproduction of the same defect in all subsequent units. This defect has been technically termed, get this, subsequential internal non-morality, or more commonly known by its initials, S-I-N. Symptoms include loss of direction, foul vocal emissions, amnesia of origin, lack of peace and joy, selfish or violent behavior, depression or confusion in the mental component, and rebellion. The manufacturer is providing factory-authorized repair and service free of charge to correct the SIN, S-I-N, defect. The repair technician, Jesus, has most generously offered to bear the entire burden of the staggering cost of these repairs. There is no additional fee required. Call toll-free the number, P-R-A-Y-E-R. Once connected, please upload your sin through the repentance procedure. Next, download atonement from the repair technician into the heart component. As an added upgrade, the manufacturer has made available to all repaired units a facility enabling direct monitoring and assistance from a resident maintenance technician, the Holy Spirit. Warning, it continues. Continuing to operate the human unit without correction voids the manufacturer's warranty, exposing the unit to dangers and problems too numerous to list and will result in the human unit being permanently impounded. The one who's doing the convincing that we need the recall is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who basically comes along and says, there's something wrong with your unit. You need to do something about that. So we're going to look at that today. And we're going to look at a few verses in particular. Honing in on what we looked at last week, we begin in verse 5, where Jesus is speaking, saying, but now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. And when He has come, He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. First of all, when it comes to how the Holy Spirit of God works in this world, His necessity is undeniable. Those disciples would need Him, would need the Holy Spirit in days ahead. Did you notice what Jesus said? He said, sorrow has filled your heart. I told you these things and sorrow has filled your heart. 
The word for filled is the word in Greek, plerao, and it means to fill something so full that you can't fit anything else in it. So imagine pouring water into a glass to the brim. It's completely filled up. Or putting gasoline in your car so it's so full that it starts to bubble out a little bit. That's plerao. That's filled to the max. So the idea is that anxiety had so controlled their thought processes, or to put it in Jesus' words, sorrow has filled your heart. You can't think about anything else. Why? Because Jesus said he was leaving. He's leaving. Their best friend is leaving them. The one that healed their families, the one that um, calmed their storms, the one that turned water into wine, the one that gave them free lunch in Galilee, the one that said, go get that fish and you'll find a coin in its mouth and you can pay the IRS this year with the money you find there. Handy guy to have around. He's going. And besides all that he's done for them, they just love him. And he's leaving them. And here's the, here's the big idea. They don't understand it. This is not what they have expected. As Jews living 2,000 years ago in and around Israel, they had in their minds, most did, um, an idea of what would happen when the Messiah would come. There was sort of a four-stage series of events, or I'll call it eschatology, an unfolding of end-time events that they expected with the Messiah's arrival. Number one, they thought that before the Messiah actually comes, there will be a period of upheaval, turmoil in the land, which they saw as being fulfilled with the Roman occupation. Number two, prior to the Messiah's arrival, an Elijah-like forerunner would come on the scene announcing the coming of Messiah. To them, that was John the Baptist. That's why so many people were interested in John's baptism. Number three, the Messiah would arrive, and when he arrived, he would defeat his enemies. He would establish his kingdom. And number four, scattered Jews from all over the world would return to Israel, and Jerusalem would be established in peace. The disciples believed they were somewhere between stage two and stage three. John the Baptist had come, the Messiah had come, next was the setting up of the kingdom. But Jesus said he was leaving, not staying, leaving. It didn't compute to them, that didn't make sense. So sorrow has filled their heart. This is not what they have expected. But here's what I want you to notice. These disciples are focusing on what they're about to lose rather than what they're about to gain. They're so bummed out and so filled with sorrow because Jesus said he's going. But they're not even registering what he's told them in terms of what they're going to receive. The Holy Spirit, the helper is coming. It's to your advantage that I go. If I go, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. How many times do you meet people who do exactly that? They focus on what they're losing or have lost rather than what they're gaining. I've met unbelievers who said, oh, I I can't give my life to Christ. I might lose my friends. Yeah, but you'll gain a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I can't give my life to Christ. I'll lose my old life. Yeah, but you'll gain eternal life, everlasting life, abundant life. Think about what you're gaining. Some of you have heard of Jim Elliott, that legendary missionary to the Alka Indians 
Probably the most famous thing he ever said was a simple sentence. It goes like this. He is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I'm leaving, boys, but the Holy Spirit, the Helper, is going to come, and Jesus said He will abide with you forever. By the way, if you do lose something, I believe God is in the business of replacing it with something better. You may not know it at the time, but Jesus put it this way. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. These disciples are going to need the Holy Spirit desperately in days to come to mitigate against the sorrow they're now feeling. But secondly, because the task that Jesus sends them on is enormous. Right before Jesus leaves, he's going to say, go into all the what? Go into all the world. Have you ever thought about that? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to whom? Every creature. That's an enormous task. That's a big job. In fact, let me put it another way. It's an impossible task. It's like me telling you, if you're standing at the dock in front of a sailboat, me saying, make that sailboat go forward by blowing into the sails. Go ahead, try it. You can do that all day long and that sailboat isn't going to move. You don't have what it takes to make that thing go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. They don't have what it takes to do that on their own. That's the point. I'm leaving, but another is coming. And he has a job to do through you in the world. Sounds impossible. They can't do it without the Spirit. So his necessity is undeniable. Second thing I want you to see is that his activity in the world is unmistakable. Verse 8. When he, that is the Spirit, when he has come, he will convict the world Three things, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. If you were to take out the word convict and replace it with the word convince, that would be another way of looking at that verse. He's going to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then he explains, verse 9, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, we just breezed over those verses last week. I'd like to unpack them because right there is the kernel of the activity of the Spirit of God in this world. First thing he does is convict the world of sin. Or here's another way of putting it. The Holy Spirit will convince people that they're sinners. Now, why would he need to do that? Simple. No one will ever look for a Savior until they think they need one. And the only people that think they need a Savior are people who know they're sinners. They have to be convinced, I need help. I'm a sinner who needs saving. So the Holy Spirit will convince people of their need for the Savior by convincing them that they are sinners. Now, I've discovered most people need convincing of that because most people don't admit that they're sinners. In fact, they, they don't even like the term sin. They hate that word. By and large, the world denies that sin exists. I'm not a sinner. I might have a hang-up. 
I might have a few issues, but I don't have sin. Or they will blame their behavior on something or someone else, like their environment. I am the way I am because what my parents said to me, they made me eat spinach when I was five years old, and I've never been the same since. So there's a shifting of blame. Or they want to blame their genes. I don't mean their Levi's. I mean their genetics. I have a propensity to anger. It's part of my genetic structure. It's, it's, a, it's not my choice. It's who I am. There's an enormous amount of blame shifting, and it takes the Holy Spirit to convince people of their need by convincing them that they're sinners. I had a man come up to me the other night, Wednesday night. Sweet man. He's big guy. Strong. I'm glad he was sweet. He uh, said that he had been coming for a while, but it wasn't until recently that he said, God is just doing something really deep inside my life. It was a conviction of the Holy Spirit he was, he was describing. He said, I've been here, I've heard many messages before, but recently I, I feel something much deeper. That is the conviction that only the Holy Spirit can bring. And by the way, that is his job, not yours. Your job isn't to convict people that they're sinners. And if you try to do that, it's going to just come off sounding like condemnation. There was a little 13-year-old girl named Elizabeth Brinton. She sold, get this, 11,200 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. Boxes. 11,200. She broke the record. Somebody said, how did you manage to sell that many boxes to people? She said, it's not that hard. you got to look them in the eye and make them feel good. Guilty. (laughs) That might work with Girl Scout cookies. It doesn't work with the gospel. It's not your job. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. Case in point, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, post-Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. He spoke to the crowd. And while he spoke, listen to what it says. And when they heard these words... They were cut to the heart. Another translation says they were convicted in their hearts. They weren't convicted in heart because Peter was a masterful sermon maker. He was a fisherman. He was just kind of learning this stuff. They were cut to the heart because the Holy Spirit was convicting the world of sin. And they said, brethren, what must we do? That day 3,000 people were saved. There was... I want you to notice what it says in verse 8 and verse 9. Notice it's sin in the singular, not in the plural. He will convict the world of sin, not sins. In verse 9, of sin, not sins, because they do not believe in me. Rather than just convicting the world of particular sins of bad behavior like murder or adultery or stealing or speeding... I've discovered the conscience, if it's working correctly, does a good job of handling those things pretty well in most people. But rather, the Holy Spirit will convict a person of sin. Singular. And especially the kind of sin that the conscience will never convict a person of. And that is of unbelief. Unbelief. The world doesn't think unbelief is a sin. If you ask an unbeliever, do you think your unbelief is a sin against God? No. 
Do you think murder is a sin? Okay, I, I can agree that murder is bad, but I don't think unbelief is bad. The world doesn't see that as a sin. In fact, many worldly people see unbelief as a badge of honor. You've heard it. You know, I, I really like to believe like you because you're just so simple-minded. Me, I'm a little more intelligent than the average bear. I'd like to believe that. I really would love to believe that, but I'm just too smart for that stuff. So they see their unbelief as something to be sort of enshrined. They're proud of it. But it's actually the worst of all sin because it's unbelief that prevents the forgiveness of all other sins. Of sin because, he said, they do not believe in me. Only the Holy Spirit can convince a person that that unbelief has to be dealt with. By the way... If you happen to live with anybody who's under conviction or work around or be around somebody in close proximity who's under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, be sure to let us know so that we can support you in prayer. If you're around a person under the conviction of God and they just are stubbornly fighting Him, they can act horribly and say hostile things to you. It's hard to live around those who are living under conviction. True story, there was a professional golfer who was playing a tournament with Jack Nicholas, President Gerald Ford, and Dr. Billy Graham. This was years ago. They were playing a tournament. At the end of the tournament, somebody asked that professional golfer, hey, what was it like playing golf with the president and Billy Graham? This man said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. Well, what was weird about that is come to find out the entire golf game, Billy Graham never brought up God or religion at all. But the fact that he was there playing and this man knew who Graham was and what he stood for was just enough to bring that conviction to the surface. I don't need him stuffing religion down my throat. So the activity of the Holy Spirit in the world is to convince people that they're sinners, number one. Number two, to convict the world of righteousness. And then it says of righteousness, verse 10, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Let's unpack that. The Holy Spirit is going to convince people that they're not good enough as they are, that their own righteousness won't cut it before God. The world has a relative righteousness, their own brand. For most people, their righteousness is, is like a thermometer. You know, the ascending degrees on a thermometer. And they'll categorize everybody according to degrees. Uh, uh, in many people's minds, um, criminals, they'd be, you know, like way down, way down low. They have a maybe 20% righteousness. They're bad. They're convicts. They're in prison. Maybe they did something really bad. But, you know, there's, there's glimmers of hope in their life. So let's give them 20%. But then there's those who are better than the convicts. They act a little bit better. We'll give them 40 uh, then there's still better men and better women. Maybe they're up to 60 or 80%. Then at the very top of the thermometer is God. He's 100%. Nobody can match Him. But these same people are banking that God in eternity is going to grade on a curve and that probably if you make 75% or above, you, you pass. You go to heaven. So these people who see relative righteousness will say, well, I'm not perfect, that's God, but I'm not as bad as those people. So their motto in life, even if they're very religious, is like, is like um, the Avis Renicar motto. We try 
harder. How you get to heaven? We try harder. I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to be good. It's a self-righteousness. The Holy Spirit will convince a person it's not enough. That relative righteousness is not enough. Because here's the deal. When Jesus hit the scene, when Jesus Christ came, He preached and, and presented, demonstrated a whole different kind of righteousness. In fact, He even said, Which of you can convict me of sin? No one could. They tried. They couldn't. He preached the Sermon on the Mount. It's a lovely sermon, but boy, there's enough in it to make one go, Yeesh. I, I, don't, I don't match up. This is what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And they would have thought, really? Because the scribes and the Pharisees are like the best. Unless my righteousness is better than theirs, I don't go to heaven. Then in the Sermon on the Mount, toward the end, he said... Therefore, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. If I'd have heard that, I would have said, I've lost hope. There is no hope. I cannot match that standard of righteousness. I feel now like how Isaiah felt when he saw the Lord and said, Woe is me, I am undone. Have you ever stood next to somebody who is an expert in something you're boasting about or, or practicing. Let, let's say you're, you're in a conversation you say, Hey, I, I've been into this whole new thing lately. And then standing next to you is like the guy who invented it. It's awfully embarrassing. Closest thing I can think in my life is I was asked to speak at uh, the Cove, the Billy Graham Training Center, uh, some years ago. And my topic was evangelism. I'm okay with that. I can, I can talk about that. But not when Billy Graham is in the audience. And that afternoon, I was at his house, and he says, I'm coming to not to hear you speak. And I thought, no, please, don't do that. But he showed up. So now it's a whole different feel to speak about how to do evangelism when the world's greatest evangelist is sitting there. And to, to make it worse, right before I spoke, the moderator that evening said, Skip, we believe that not everybody here is saved necessarily just because they come to the cove. We'd like you to call people to faith, to do an altar call. I go, really? <laughs> so now, now transfer that into what we're talking about. We can't brag about our righteousness when you're standing next to the righteous one any more than you can brag to NASA about, look, I made a paper airplane. Isn't that cool? Then cut it. So it's the Holy Spirit's job that will convince a person, you're not good enough on your own. This righteousness won't cut it before God, and the standard is the life of Christ. So here's the deal. Jesus said of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. What does that mean? Jesus died on the cross for our sin, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. When he ascended into heaven at the right hand of the throne of God, it's as if God was saying, this is the righteousness I will accept. Here's the standard. This is the righteousness I will receive into my presence. So the Holy Spirit convinces people that they're sinners in need of a Savior, convinces people that their own righteousness isn't enough, but the one that Jesus will provide for them is enough. And only the Spirit of God can do that. 
He did it in the life of Paul. We're going to be taking a tour of the journeys of Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle, a very religious Jewish zealot rabbi, wrote these words in Philippians. Everything that was dear to me I count as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count it as rubbish, that I might be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the idea here. The Holy Spirit convinced Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, that he was a sinner in need of a Savior, that his righteousness wasn't good enough. He needed what Christ would provide for him. And number three, notice, he'll convince or convict the world of judgment. And then in verse 11, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convince people that judgment is real and they're liable for judgment. That if they reject the solution for their sin, if they reject the righteousness that God provides, then the inevitable consequence will be the judgment of God. And that is proven to them by what happened to Satan when Jesus died on a cross. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan tried to throw everything he could at him. He was unsuccessful. And when Jesus died on our cross, effectively splitting or destroying Satan's hold on people, Satan's doom was sealed You say, it was? Because for the last 2,000 years since the cross happened, Satan's done a pretty good job at messing up our world. That's right. That's because he hadn't been sentenced yet. That's coming. That's coming. But the point is, is just as Satan was destroyed effectively on the cross, everyone who follows him is going to end up in the same way. And that is the judgment of God. I always think it's healthy when a person gets a little worried about the coming judgment of God. When anyone's cavalier about it, I don't care what happens when I die. I'm ready to face God. I have a few questions to ask Him. I get a little skittish. Like, I want to move five feet away. I just don't like lightning strikes. I had an FBI agent in my office uh, some time back, and he, uh, he was very interesting. He said to me, you know, I'm on the SWAT team, and I've had guns pointed at my head a number of times. I've stood in the face of death on many occasions. Because it wasn't until recently that I'm suddenly afraid of dying. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me when I die. And then he quickly turned to me and says, that's kind of weird, huh? And I said, no, it's not weird. And he goes, well, it makes me feel like a pansy. I said, I think it's one of the best things I've ever heard. I think it's one of the healthiest things is to feel worried about what's going to happen to you when you die. And I was able to talk him through that and through that led him to Christ, faith in Christ, to do something about that feeling of judgment. Because when a person pushes away the conviction of the Holy Spirit, "Ah, I don't care about that. It's not a good sign. Did you know that before the Titanic sunk, that somebody wired the ship and warned them that there were huge iceberg masses, ice flows in the area? The operator on the Titanic wired back these words. Shut up. We're busy. Now think of those words for anyone on the Titanic. Shut up. We're busy. How many people today, you talk to them about God. 
Shut up, I'm busy. Shut up, I want some fun. Go away. So the Holy Spirit has a task to do. The disciples need Him. That's undeniable. His activity is to convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. I want to close with this thought. His agency is unremarkable. You see, the Holy Spirit's going to do the work of convicting, but He's going to use normal, unremarkable people. You and I. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. We'll close with this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. Those 11 disciples gathered around Him at that moment. You. And then follow that up with verse 8. When He has come, and the implication is come to you. I'm going to send Him to you. And when He has come to you, then He'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit doing the conviction, but He's going to use us as the agents of that. Our words, human channels. Human channels. How does the Holy Spirit do all this work in the world? You and I. Making ourselves available for Him to do that. In a conversation you have at Starbucks, at school, in the neighborhood, on the phone with relatives. That's how he'll do it. You know that every conversion in the book of Acts, that there's a human agent involved in bringing the gospel and bringing conviction. Think of Peter on the day of Pentecost. It says they heard what Peter spoke. Peter was the speaker. It was the word of God, but Peter was the agent. Simple Peter, the fisherman. It says they were cut to the heart. Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, but what about Saul of Tarsus? I mean, he had a vision. That wasn't a human agent. That's true. He had a vision of Christ. But remember what Jesus said. He said, Saul, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what goads are? Those are the things that prick an animal. He was speaking of the goads of conviction. It was Saul of Tarsus who heard Stephen give a testimony. And he watched Stephen And he heard Stephen, and he watched him die. And seeing that brought conviction. Listen, look at this man die for Christ, for what he believes. That brought conviction to his heart. And Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against those goads, isn't it? So in all of the cases in Acts, we see the Holy Spirit working powerfully, but through normal people. God does miracles. He always has, always will. Um... He can send visions and dreams. I've heard of Muslims who have come to faith around the world. There hasn't been an evangelist, but God has given them a vision or a dream, and they've received Christ because of that. But normally, the Holy Spirit will use human beings to bring the conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the normal means through the believer's human channels. Have you ever thought of what it was like or what it would have been like to receive Peter's resume? I mean, because these guys were very unimpressive, the apostles. What would Peter's resume read like? Let's say Peter says, I want to join your mission group. Here's my application. Okay, well, let's see your resume. It says here, Peter, that you like to fish a lot and uh, that you're pretty high strung 
And uh, it says here by others who have written about you that you get angry very easily. In fact, it says here that one time you actually cut off a guy's ear trying to protect God. I don't think we can accept you on our team, Peter. Next. And let's say the next resume is James and John. They're brothers, so they're together. Boy, this is very troubling. I read here that you once wanted to nuke an entire village in Israel. You remember the story they said about the Samaritan village. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? This doesn't look good. Do you guys have ties to Al-Qaeda? Are you terrorists? You wouldn't work on our team. Or, or what about Thomas's resume? Boy, this does not look good, Tom. It says that you're the party pooper of the bunch. We, we do not want you. You're so negative. You get my point? All of these people that were gathered around Jesus at the time were unremarkable. They were normal. You look inside the Holy Spirit's toolbox, you may find a brilliant one here or there, or an articulate one here or there, a talented one here or there, but mostly you just find us. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. What's their secret? The Holy Spirit. Active, daily, in those chance encounters you have by what you say and what you do. Somebody once said, yeah, there's four Gospels, but there's actually five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and and you. And that author said, you are writing a Gospel, a chapter each day by the things that you do and the words that you say. People hear what you say and they see what you do, so... What is the gospel according to you? According to your words, according to your life. A lot of people won't read the Bible. They're not going to like pick up this book and start reading necessarily. But they're going to read your life. If the Holy Spirit is in you because you're filled, not with sorrow, but filled with the Spirit. You know, if you bump a pitcher, what comes out? Whatever's inside the pitcher. If people bump you in your life, what comes out? Whatever you're filled with. If you're filled with anger, that'll come out. If you're filled with frustration, that'll come out. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that'll come out. Father, may that be so. May the Spirit of the living God occupy that position where we so need Him and so depend on Him and He is so faithful to convict, to convince, to do what we can't do, convince the world, worldly people, those apart from your covenant, that they're sinners in need of a Savior, that their own we-try-harder mentality isn't enough to cut it. They need a righteousness that you give. And that if not, there is a certain judgment. Because the ruler of this world, who lies to everyone... His fate is sealed. His doom is secure. And like leader, like follower. We cannot do that, Lord. Only you can. Would you do that? In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.
If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you, and God bless.